0: Morning, everyone. I'm Andrew Shea, pastor of Teaching and Vision here at Branches, and clearly this is not us in person in a park. We made that decision uh, yesterday after we looked at like 18 different forecasts to see if there was the possibility of rain during our gathering, and of course it was clearly projected that it would be raining. Now we're here this morning. I'm recording this. I guarantee you at 10 o'clock it's going to be 85 and sunny, and you're all going to be saying, why didn't we meet at the park? It's the most beautiful day. Well, we're going to blame it on the forecast, and we're going to make do with this setting right here, the video setting. It does give me a mild bit of PTSD being back preaching at a camera. It's those old COVID days, but I want you to know I'm not going to be holding anything back because uh, this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it is so special. It's so chock full of wisdom, and I'm so passionate about what it has to say to all of us this morning. So let's open up. Hopefully you have your Bible. You can open up your smartphone, what have you. Let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, last week, Paul talked about the role of the Holy Spirit as the source of all knowledge and comprehension regarding the gospel, how God works, what he's done through Jesus Christ. All spiritual wisdom, in fact, finds its source not in human ingenuity or our creativity or our smart thinking it finds its source always in god's divine revelation think of it like all accurate spiritual teaching is like divine plagiarism now god is just fine with us sharing in his ideas and sharing his ideas but in the end who gets the credit when it's his ideas start to finish So it's ridiculous this infighting in the Corinthian church that Paul's been addressing where they're lifting up these different personalities over their supposed intellect or capabilities as various leaders. That ought to be thrown in the trash because it's all about God. Paul's going to make that even more explicit and obvious this week as he further clarifies the role of ministers and leaders in the church. And in so doing, He's going to make it clear for all of us where our vision and aspirations as believers ought to be focused. Now, I'm going to have you know, before I begin in reading this passage, this was nothing short of revolutionary for me when I read and understood the truth of this passage. And I'm praying it'll be the same for you. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Let me turn my page here. They've been stuck together. Oh, this never would happen in person, but of course this would happen on video. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow." So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. even though only as one escaping through the flames. In this passage, Paul begins to directly attack the primary issue the Corinthian church was experiencing that caused him to write this letter in the first place. Up until this point, he's sort of been nibbling at the edges of the issue, as it were. But right here in the reading that we just did, you're going to see he's going to take a bite right down the middle of this problem. And what he's shutting down is what I mentioned at the outset, this nonsensical division over human leaders. And that's how he wants the Corinthians to feel about division in the church. It's nonsensical. It's childish at best. See what he says in verse 1. He says, I could not address you Corinthians as people who live by the Spirit meaning he couldn't talk to them as if they were Christians, as if they were even followers of Jesus, but as those who still belong to the world. He says in verse two, I had to give you milk instead of solid food because you were not yet mature enough to digest it. So this is nice, right? <laughs> nice statements from Paul. He's saying they're the spiritual equivalent of the 40-year-old man or woman still living in their mom and dad's basement. Actually, it's, it's worse than that. They're so arrested in their spiritual development, they're like spiritual influence. It's like he has to address them with single-syllable words and simple sentences just so they can understand him. Now, what was the evidence of their extreme immaturity for Paul? Well, he explains in verse 3. He says, For you are still worldly, still living of the flesh, not of the Spirit of God. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, Are you not still worldly? That behavior, their jealousy and quarreling was all Paul needed to know to prove that they were not being led by the Spirit, but living like babies in Christ. It's like, how do you you and I recognize a baby? You know, how do you and I recognize a baby, identify a baby? Well, it's very easy. You know, you look at their size, they're very many, Uh, you look at their smell. Uh, you know, babies very distinct smell. If uh, you've ever been around babies, you you see what they eat, their dietary choices. You see the sounds that they make. It's very easy to identify a baby. How do you recognize a spiritual infant? A spiritual infant, you know, they come in my experience in all sizes and ages, but it's very easy to identify a spiritual infant. You can see them by if they have a quarreling and jealous attitude and spirit. Because what has Christ done? He's reconciled us to God, and he's reconciled us to one another. He's broken down the barriers that divide us from each other to make us into one new humanity, to make us the one body that is his. Through the one faith, him as our one Lord, we're all filled with the one spirit of God. And what does quarreling and jealousy do among Christians. It dices up what God has put together and made united by the power of Jesus. It's like any time I work on my car, if I have a project in the garage, if my two-year-old son is nearby, here I am, I'm organizing all my wrenches. I'm organizing every bolt and nut that comes out of the car. I need to know exactly where it's supposed to be. And here I'm building, you know, I'm restoring. And there my two-year-old son is, taking every single wrench, taking every single bolt and nut and tossing them haphazardly across the garage. I can never find anything I need. He's directly opposing the constructive work that I'm doing. And in the same way, that's what's happening in this church. right? I can't think of any human behavior beyond quarreling and jealousy that more overtly opposes the work of Christ on the cross. It's a telltale sign that human ego and infighting has replaced Christ's power to be our peace. Now, I love what Paul uses as an insult for those who embody these attitudes in the Corinthian church. He uses this insult in verse 3 and verse 4. He says, when you and I behave like this, when they behave like this, are they not acting like mere human beings? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not acting like mere human beings? Now, have you guys ever heard human being used as an insult before? You know, that's what I'm going to do next to my kids are arguing with each other. I'm going to take them to task. I'm going to say, oh, how dare you guys, you human beings, the way that you're behaving? That'll really put them in their place, right? But what's implied there in that being used as an insult? In calling the Corinthians mere human beings, is the expectation of Paul that we as followers of Christ ought to be so much more than what you'd encounter commonly in the world. The world operates in this culture of celebrity worship and influencers and personalities. It's envious. It's filled with people who are jealous for more attention from other people. That's all very human, right? But in Christ, we are to be people of the Spirit, who have left all of that self-seeking far behind. Why? Because we understand what Paul explains in verses 5 to 9. The true nature of church celebrity and spiritual leadership. Let's explore what he says, starting there in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul rhetorically asks, what, after all, is Apollo's? And what is Paul?" Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Paul's saying, these are the guys, myself included, that you are propping up because of their talent, because of their supposed influence, and you're feeling inflated by being associated with one of us over the other. Do you know what Apollos is? Do you know what Paul, do you know what I myself am and I consider myself to be? He says, servants. That's what we are. We're only slaves. Making much of us and celebrating us is like celebrating the McDonald's drive-thru attendant. When you're driving through McDonald's, do you stop, and there's the drive-thru attendant, and you say, oh my gosh, it's you. Let me get a selfie with you. Would you please autograph my receipt? No, you would never do that. You know, that person isn't even on your radar. You know, making much of Paul or Apollos or Peter, he's saying, man, it's like making much of those You know, laborers that are working in those random strawberry fields off the 405. You know, who are those people to you? You know, they're not people that you would normally celebrate. He goes, We're not upper class. We're not important. We're lower class. We're only servants. Now, yes, Paul says, we are servants through whom you came to believe, meaning God has worked through us, but it was God's working and telling each of us what to do in each of your lives. Paul says in verse six, I planted the seed meaning he came into town, he came into Corinth, and he preached the gospel of Jesus. Apollo swatted it, meaning he's the next guy into town, and he built upon that and encouraged the church after Paul came through. But Paul says God is the one who's been making it grow. So who should get the credit here? God is the one who supplies the seed. God is the one who supplies the water and the sunshine and the soil and establishes the workers and tells them how to work and affects the growth in the church. So what do we conclude in comparison to God? Verse 7, neither the one who plants nor waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul's saying, yes, we work the field for God, but keep the big picture in view. Who owns the field? Who owns the building? Meaning the church. God all the way. Friends, the life in us is God's. The creation that we operate in is God's. The minds that we have are gifts from God. The ideas in our minds find their source in God if they are constituting true spiritual wisdom. The gifts to preach and share spiritual truth are gifts from God. The ability to comprehend the messages that are being shared is by God's power. The salvation that we enjoy is God's work through the cross of Jesus. And the heaven that we're all hoping to inherit was established, built, sustained, and inhabited by God. More credit for God and less for humankind in our Christianity, please. Now, I hear what you're saying. Okay, Andrew, it's clear. I get the message, God gets the credit. But where in the grand scheme of God's activity do ministers and leaders in the church fit in? What is their place? What is their lane? Well, as servants, Paul said in verse 5, they're each assigned a task. In the case of Paul, he says in verse 10, By the grace God gave me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And now someone else is building on it. Meaning again, God gifted him the materials and tools to preach the gospel of Jesus to this church. And then Apollos came in and helped mature the church with additional teaching. And so he was building upon the foundation that Paul laid of Christ. It's the planting and watering analogy all over again now in a construction metaphor. And again, Paul's quick to give credit where credit is due. There's only one foundation anyone can build upon, that is Jesus. Not all work is created equal. It's only God if its foundation is Jesus. So again, all depends on him. But beyond laying the foundation of Jesus in people's lives, the various leaders of the church are assigned various tasks to bring people up in him. And the work of ministers is important, even as they in themselves are not important, because they have a very important responsibility to build and do their work with precious materials, to work in people's lives with quality that is God-honoring. Now, I let you guys know last week, I was tasked with helping my daughter build a replica of a California mission for her school project. And I believe I did a very mediocre job, if I do say so myself. I rushed cutting the windows and gluing the bits together. And I'll tell you, my daughter thought that was just about the best replica mission that she ever did see. Uh, She thought that was just the most amazing thing and she was so proud to carry that in Uh, The work that we did together. And, uh, you know, at the same time, I'm fully aware that is not going to be displayed in the district office. You know, that is not going to be there in the Dad's Hall of Fame of replica missions. Because the truth is, I can fool my daughter with the sort of quality of work that I'm doing, but I can't fool an adult. And the same thing is true with human beings. You know, there are ministers in this world who are doing work for the Lord, but they're doing so with not so precious materials and they can fool other human beings but they cannot make a fool of god and one day the true quality of their work is going to be revealed on the day of judgment for those who work their role with quality there's going to be a reward but for those who inserted themselves and they inserted their preferences and they made it more about their own personality and their own ego, that's going to be shown for what it is. And they'll get into heaven by God's grace, but not before getting singed by God's judgment. They're smoking as they move in through the pearly gates. To Paul, that's all in God's hands. Because you see this through his whole ministry. He's running as fast as he can, and he's working as hard as he can in the lane that God has given him. He wasn't worried about what people think, not so worried about what his contemporaries were doing, not appealing to anybody nor courting anybody's favor for himself. He wasn't trying to win any popularity contests or build his fan base of followers on ancient Instagram. He was just building the church with quality materials and looking forward to the day of God's judgment and Christ revealing. Now, I want you to know, like I said at the outset, this passage was nothing less than supernaturally paradigm-shifting for me and my whole outlook on myself and this world when I read it for the first time. This passage alone, by the Spirit of God, took me from paralyzing self-doubt to now taking personality tests and being told I'm self-assured. Now, I'll admit, Being self-assured has to be about the worst-sounding, most arrogant strength that anybody could possibly possess. But to clarify, it doesn't embody what I truly feel. After this truth being worked in my life, I don't feel self-assured. I feel I've been transformed into somebody who is Christ-assured. Now, what does it mean to be Christ-assured? Well, human beings commonly feel the instinct to want to people-please to want to impress others, to want to assert strength, to perform in front of other people. And they feel corresponding self-doubt when they fail to live up to the projections that they're sending out to everybody around them. But when you and I are truly grounded in Christ, in the Spirit, all of that melts away. And all you care about is one thing, doing exactly what God wants. Because that's the only thing that's going to matter into eternity. That's living, Christ assured. That attitude admits man, I can't please everybody. In fact, I'm not quite sure I can please anybody, but I can do what God has called me to do by His grace. So, as a pastor and a believer, I don't need to be on social media, I don't need to write a book, I don't need to rub shoulders with the influential. I don't need you to like me. I mean, I sure would love to express loving kindness and friendship with you, but I don't need you to like me is the distinction. I don't need the church, Branches HB, to grow. Now I sure would love if every church in Huntington Beach grew, if that's a sign that people are coming to the Lord and they're growing in Christ. So I would love growth from that mindset, but I don't need that for something in myself. I don't need anything from anybody as if I lacked anything outside of Christ. What I need to do with my life and what you need to do is one thing and one thing alone. Work for God's reward and build with spiritual craftsmanship. Do good work. God's work with your life. Nothing else is impressive. Friends, nothing else matters. Your skill, my skill, your title or my title in the workplace, your natural charisma or lack of it, your youth, your experience, your knowledge or mine, who you know and who you don't, how much money you make and where you live none of that impresses God, and none of that should impress any of us either. It's a natural thing that that would impress people in the world, but in the church, it's embarrassing. It's infantile when we lift those qualities up. You know, I've been in church meetings, I've been in gatherings of pastors, and everyone's got an impressive title. Here's prophet this, here's apostle so-and-so, and the whole time I'm sitting there and I'm going, well, that's all well and good, but are you guys servants? That's what Paul says he was. Do you guys know, for all of your titles, for all of your influence, that like Paul, You can honestly say, man, I'm not anything at all in comparison to God. That's what I care about hearing. I've been at the table of spiritual influence. I've been invited in, and there's the pastor, and he talks like he's a Fortune 500 CEO, and everybody treats that individual like they walk on water. Friends, you and I know full well, apart from Christ, every single one of us sinks like a rock. Every single one of us. You know, oh, they're talking about, oh, in our church, we have a special donor dinner. All the highest givers of the church, we get to let them in on the special vision of the church, and that's how we raise more capital. I go, how do you honor the highest donors of the church? How do you even know who they are? Maybe somebody's given a million dollars, but they have a billion dollars. And and God looks at that and thinks that that's less of an offering than the you know single mom who's tithing off her penny-pinching paycheck. Where's her donor dinner that God sees? She's the sacrificial one in the community. You see, God's not impressed with that worldly thinking in the church, and we should not be impressed either. That's why I didn't go back to the table of worldly influence, because that's the table of spiritual ignorance. Infancy. It's pure infancy. And nobody's going to hell over it. But man, we can do better in the church. We can grow up. We can eat some steak, not be on milk, or impossible burgers, or what have you, you know, if, if that's what you're into. Solid food. We can have that here in America by not playing part in that spiritual celebrity charade. Whatever Christian celebrity, I don't care how big the guys or girls platform, I don't care how fancy the quotes, I don't care how massive around the biceps, I don't care how many veins pop out of the neck when they preach, or how complicated the theology is, or how many books they've written, or how many churches they've planted. Nobody is more than just a slave in God's field, in God's building, and we together constitute that building. And by God's grace alone, everything happens in that building, everything happens in that field, and by God's grace, everything grows. And any true minister of Christ won't argue with anything I just said, except that they would give a humble and hearty amen, that they've been put in their rightful place, even as we're putting God in his rightful place. As we think about this, what do we walk away with? You know, the first thing I want to assert is that God is jealous for his glory. God's jealous for his glory. So let's praise him. And when we praise him, it's not like praising human ego where it just has that ick factor to it, right? It's like Praising something beautiful. It's like celebrating justice when we praise God. It's like being overjoyed at a gracious gift. That's the sort of praise that emerges from us when we give God his rightful glory. I mean, who doesn't celebrate something like when a foster child is adopted into a loving family? When a foster child is adopted into a loving family, there is something wrong with you if you don't feel overjoyed if you don't feel like this is right, this is good, this is pure, and you're just overflowing with that sort of joy and praise. And and God, we know in the Scriptures, is the source of every high and beautiful thing. He is the embodiment of every high and just and right and beautiful thing. So when we give Him the full stage of our hearts, man, we do what is right, giving glory and attributing glory to the only place where it belongs. It's beautiful and it's right, so... God is jealous for his glory. Let's not share it with human beings. And that's my second point. Let's oppose the culture of Christian celebrity. And I don't just mean let's reject it. I mean, we actively have to oppose that culture because it's corrosive, it is anti gospel. You know, I was just in a conversation with some friends, and they shared with me about two high profile pastors that I'm familiar with but didn't know. Uh, you know, it was just disclosed maybe in this last year that they had some massive moral failings. And we're not talking just, you know, a one-time mistake. We're talking repetitive moral failings that had come to the surface. And their coming clean in it was less than actually clean. So it's just a mess on top of a mess. Just more people added to the list. And my friends, I, I understand why they have this feeling. They say, why is it always the same story?" why does every pastor fail this way why is this the testimony that's going out into the rest of the world and my friends brothers and sisters in the church i want you to know it is not always the same story it is always the same story with those individuals who want their egos fed and then find a group of christians all too eager to feed it but they are not pastors though they claim the title They do not represent the pastors that I know, the dozens I know, in this city who serve, who would never embezzle money, who would never have some sort of illicit affair. Who defines pastoral ministry for me? It's John Boyer over at Seaside. It's Peter Little over at Christ Pacific. It's Pat Cottrell over at Calvary Baptist. It's Paul Harmon over at Hope Chapel. It's Joel Kelly at Radiant Church. It's Jeremy Celentano over at Activate Church. These guys are the vast majority of pastors across this nation. They are servants. And you don't know their names? Because they're not like the narcissists who get to the top with their face on the conference, on the book, because we prop them up. We need to kill Christian celebrity and the cult of personality in the church. Don't give men and women God's glory. They weren't built or meant to receive it, and they never steward it all that well. Finally, let's all live Christ-assured. You know, when we're putting God back in His place, and we're assuming the place that God has for us, we can live with that Christ-assurance. We can quit the world's game of trying to be somebody for everybody else. We've already been made whole in Christ, and in the gospel, we know that we're all equal that nobody is better than anybody else. So let's all just be who God has made us to be, the servants who all have a task in God's field. One's called to plant, one's called to water, and let's all just live to do it our best, to do God's work with quality and attention to detail, single-minded about why we're even here on this floating rock for the time that we're here. Man, it's all about one thing, to live this life for the Lord. Because on the day of judgment, your promotion at work is not what you're going to be rewarded for. It's not going to be your greatest accomplishment, nor is your curated Instagram page, nor how good your golf game or how perfect your body. It will all be about what you and I did to join God in his work in this world. Who cares if it looks like a little or a lot to other people? We care only about what God thinks of what we've done. That's Christ's assurance. That's going to free us from the game of this world so that we can live productive, unified lives in the Lord. And I'm going to pray that over us. Would you join me in prayer as we let this truth sink in by the Holy Spirit into our lives? Would you pray with me? You know, Heavenly Father, we want to give you glory. We want to give you praise. And you're jealous for that praise because, you know, man, it, it becomes a mess when we give that glory and that praise to human beings where it doesn't belong. We weren't built to receive your glory for ourselves. We were built to worship you, to honor you. You are the source of every high and good and perfect gift. You are purity. You are just. You are merciful. You are the source of it all. And so, Lord, we place you where you belong. Lord, help us to defend your church against ego and pride, and celebrity, and self-seeking God. That confuses what this is all about. When we lift up men and women, man, the imperfections are what we preach to the rest of the world. But when we lift you up, Jesus, it is perfection that the world encounters. All people will be drawn to you. We won't be divided. We'll be united because you are our peace. Lord, help us to understand our role in this life. It's to honor you and it's to do the work that you called us to do with precious and quality materials. God, you have an assignment. You have a role for every single believer in your church, every single person I'm speaking to right now. And Lord, you're going to reward them based on the work that they did for you and your kingdom. It doesn't have to look like much in the world. It doesn't have to look like much to other people. But sometimes the things that look like much, you're going to reveal actually was very little in eternity. So God, you can do something more in all of our lives when we just work at what you've called us to do. Give us that single-mindedness. Help us to run in that lane. Free us from being people-pleasers. Free us from seeking something in the affirmations of other people. Lord, we want to be a body filled with encouragement, with love, with community, but we don't want to have to live for the affirmations of other people. We want to live for your affirmation the praise that will come from you when we do your work and you reward us for that work. So God, I just pray that you'd purify any of our motives right now. If we're seeking to be somebody in the eyes of others in our workplace, even in our families, among our friends, Lord, would we seek to be a servant of you because that's what you love. And Lord, would you clarify for every single one of us with all the goals that we have in this world, what are those things that are just going to wash away And they're not even significant for eternity. But what are those simple things? What are even maybe those small things that you're calling us into in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our relationships that are really gonna be the things that you honor into eternity? Lord, help us to make our lives about those things, those things that you care about, the work that you want us to do. That's why we're here, Lord. So even now, I just invite you in your living rooms, wherever you are, would you just pray and ask the Lord, Lord, what is that assignment? What have you called me to do? Who are the people that you've called me to? What's the thing that you're going to reward me for in eternity? And how can I make my life about that thing more right now? I want to invite you to spend some time in that posture of prayer as we've closed out this time. And I just want to bless you into that. So just continue. Sit there with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Read those 15 verses again and ask the Lord, Lord, what is the assignment that you've given to me?